Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode deals with sexual assault and contains some graphic detail. Please be mindful as you proceed. But then it's still up to the perpetrator's commander, the accused's commander, if they want to press charges or not and what those charges will be. In 2018, Erin Scanlon was a first lieutenant in the Army stationed at Fort Bragg. She and her friend decided to go off base to have a fun night together. While at the party, Erin was sexually assaulted by a fellow enlisted soldier. After going through the proper channels to report the assault to her superiors, you would think the nightmare would be over. But the way in which the military dealt with Erin's case was a new nightmare in itself. Listen to Erin tell her story in her own words in an interview with Crawl Space's Jennifer Amell, recorded earlier this year. This is not the end of Erin's story. In fact, the nightmare was just beginning as they moved to prosecute her rapist, and the military chain of command got involved. And make sure to listen all the way through and really hear what Erin's saying. This is a very important conversation. One of the points that she brings up is military serves the American people, not the other way around. And that whole concept is very apparent throughout the telling of her story. And this is part two. Make sure to listen to part one of Erin's story. If you want to listen to more of Erin's story, she has a podcast out there called Hey Erin. You can contact her on Instagram at Hey Erin Scanlon. That's H-E-Y-E-R-I-N-S-C-A-N-L-O-N. My parents experienced some pretty severe secondary trauma. Um, they actually flew out multiple times in the, the few months after because they were so concerned. Through all this, the only reason I'm now like an advocate, I think, is because I had a few good victim advocates because I was an officer and so I was treated a little bit better and because I had a good family support system and good friend support system. If I was like an enlisted soldier, oh my God, there's no way I would probably be alive. Why would that be different? Because I was in charge of like my section. And so if I had appointments, I could just go to them. Or if I needed to set an appointment to go talk to a victim advocate because I had just been triggered, uh, I could. If I was an enlisted soldier, I'd have to have an appointment slip, which when you get triggered and need to go immediately, uh, you're not going to have that planned. Um, And then I would have had to explain to my supervisor why I needed to leave immediately and so often because I was missing a lot of work and just that having to re-explain myself every time and 
you're just treated a little bit better. You're treated more of an adult as an officer. And there's no way I could have like protected myself as well as I did if I was uh, a junior enlisted soldier. There's no way. It was my commissioned rank that was protecting me a little bit um, and allowing me the flexibility to like go take care of myself. And it would not have had that if I was a young soldier. It makes me worried about the 18 year olds who enlist to serve our country and have no protection. Yeah. So after it was Cumberland County, right? That took over your Mm -hmm. case. At what point did the army get back involved? Cumberland County obviously did the full investigation, had enough to charge him with two felonies and a misdemeanor, set a trial date. So the assault was September of 2016. Around December of 2017, they had set a trial date for February of 2018. So that was, in a way, relieving to have like an end in sight. And then the week before or two weeks before the trial through my SVC and the, so my army appointed attorney, my special victims counsel, as well as the army prosecutors reached out and said essentially that they didn't know that the case was soldier on soldier and that it should have been initially with the military from the beginning and that they wanted to try it as a court-martial instead of having the civilians try it. And so we actually had a meeting in the Cumberland County DA's office with the DA, the military prosecution, those two attorneys, my Army SVC, my Army victim advocate, and my civilian victim advocate. And they all sat down and basically went over the pros and cons of each jurisdiction trying the case. And the military prosecutors expressed that because the jury or the panel in the military would be all service members who all have had sharp training, everyone in the military drinks, everyone in the military knows the culture of drinking. And then they also expressed that if in the court-martial he was not convicted of some of the charges, they could always use the non-judicial punishment to punish him after the court-martial. So when you had first reported this to CID, they weren't aware that it was another soldier? No, they were aware because I do have the email traffic of uh, the CID agents notifying the detective this is the perpetrator this is where he can be or the accused at that point this is where he can be reached at Um, so I have all those emails but that's where some of the uh, confusion lies just don't understand why they would send you away to like I believe it's because they didn't want to deal with it they hoped that Uh, I would report to the local authorities. The local authorities would be so bogged down. They wouldn't have enough evidence. Rape cases are hard in general to prove and that it would just kind of get lost in the system and that the problem would essentially go away. I think that's what they believed and were hoping for. And that's why they sent me to 
the Fayetteville Police Department. And then I think when they realized that it was going to go to a trial in the civilian court, the military was scared of that, of losing control, of having a special operator soldier being accused of a felony in the civilian court and them not having any control over what comes out during that trial. And that's why they reached out to to me and to the Cumberland County District Attorney um, saying that they wanted to try it as a court martial. And so at that point, I was like, I am not a lawyer. This is should not be my decision. We are two weeks away from trial. I'm literally losing my mind. I don't know why you expect me to be making this decision. And so it was kind of just like consensus, like, okay, we'll just have the military try it because the military houses both of us and the military should be looking out for its service members. I actually, uh, not that long ago, I asked my civilian victim advocate, who is the director of the Rape Crisis Center nonprofit in Cumberland County and has been the director for like 12 years now. So she's worked with Fayetteville Police Department, Cumberland County, Fort Bragg for the 12 years that she's been the director. I asked her, so have they figured out this jurisdiction now? Is it still an issue in certain cases? Do they still have these meetings between the the civilian DA and the military prosecutor to decide who's going to have jurisdiction? And she said, I had never seen that before your case and I've never seen it since. So my case was very special. That's crazy. And the military took good care to keep it controlled. And then, um, so this, the, the man who assaulted you, he was part of a special ops? Yes. He, uh, so I found out a few weeks later after I reported it from the Fayetteville Police Department detective civilian that the perpetrator was a member of JSOC, um, Joint Special Operations Command. And so I, being in the military, knew what that meant. And that made me only more terrified, uh, knowing that he was a special operator, highly trained, and also that the military didn't bother to tell me that he was in the military. Because at that point, I still thought he was a civilian. At that point, I had only had a no contact order from the civilian side. And then I realized I needed to get a military protective order as well, which unfortunately was really hard to get to. I wouldn't even think that's possible. It's the same thing basically as a no contact order, but a no contact order, Cumberland County can't be enforced on federal property. So the military has their own that the military police or the provost marshals enforce. So what happened after the army took over the prosecution? So at that point, I remember it was like uh, Valentine's Day weekend and they, when they officially preferred the charges. So they took all the investigative work and the civilian charges and the JAG um, advisors to the perpetrator's commander, present him with the information and say, this is the investigation. This is what you should probably charge him with. But then it's still up to the perpetrator's commander 
the accused's commander if they want to press charges or not and what those charges will be. So that was actually a risk that I was taking in letting the military take the case from the civilians because they could have just dropped charges or, I mean, not press charges, but they did, luckily. Um, but then the that started not the investigation over, but now the prosecutor and the, def- well, the defense attorney was already ready to go because he had a civilian defense attorney. But the military prosecutors now had to learn the whole case and prepare for a trial. And they set the trial for June of 2018. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Between the military pulling jurisdiction and taking control of the case and the actual court-martial happening is where... I saw a significant decline in my mental health to the point where I got put on the high-risk soldier list at my command, which meant like, yeah, um, the soldier's like going through some severe mental health issues, something. I don't even know exactly what it's for, but there's literally a board or like a, a meeting that happens where they go over high-risk soldiers and the Sark is like, yeah, this is, this person is a high risk soldier. Oh my God. Yeah. Were you embarrassed? Like, I didn't, I didn't know. I had no idea that, oh, that was all no going idea. on. I had no idea that that was all going on. It seems like um, you have like this whole group of people like conspiring outside of your knowledge. I was this entire time I had been seeing a therapist off post, but my advocates thought it would be a better idea for me to, to go back on post to get counseling, um, even though it's hard to establish care and it was really hard to get regular care. They just figured that because everything was military now, it would be better and then there would be records and whatnot. I was still going, like this entire time I was going to counseling, my parents came out again because... Uh, essentially my victim advocate told them you need to come out here. Like she's really bad. She's not leaving the house. There was like a full on intervention at one point before that I actually asked my victim advocate if we could find an inpatient facility for me to go to because I knew I was suffering, but I, the military has like inpatient therapy 
or inpatient treatments for substance abuse. Um, so I figured there's got to be something like that for trauma or depression or anxiety because I didn't have like substance abuse or anything like that. I was just severely, severely depressed. So it was like PTSD and depression. And so I asked to go to an inpatient facility and I also, I, but I also wasn't suicidal. So I couldn't just check myself in to sick South is what we call it at Bragg. It's like the mental psych ward. And we couldn't find anything in terms of inpatient facility. So I just like con- continued suffering and I don't know why the military didn't care more because uh, my work was completely suffering. Like I was, I was barely working. I was very unproductive in terms of military and was again, like this high risk soldier, the advocates had like the, I say like the advocate, like team had like multiple interventions with command, behavioral health, my parents, they set up a plan that like I had to check in every morning at nine with the one advocate and every afternoon at three with another. Like it was, it was really, really bad, really, really bad. Then only a couple of weeks before the trial, the military established the special victims council because in the, the way that the law works is a rape or sexual assault is a crime against the government and the victim is the witness to the crime. And that's just the way, even in the civilian side, that's just the way that the law looks at the crime. In trying to prosecute a sexual assault or rape, sometimes not all of the government's interests align with the victim's interest. And in something as traumatizing as sexual assault, something as traumatizing and personal, personally violating as sexual assault. Um, it's important to keep what the victim, what's important for the victim at the forefront as well. And so the army developed or the military developed the special victims council. And it's so that that army appointed attorney, I, I say army, but I think it's a military program represents the victim and only the victim. Sometimes there's collateral misconduct, for example, underage drinking, um, drug use, fraternization, other collateral misconduct that comes out during the investigation that they don't want the victim to get too scared to report because of collateral misconduct. So they give them their own attorney to represent them. So my Special Victims Council, who I was on my fourth at this point, by the way, because they had such a rapid turnover because they kept moving positions, one deployed, one I asked, the first one actually, I asked for a new one because he gave me the completely wrong legal advice and told me, I can't help you if it's in the civilian side. And instead of like trying to look anything up, I just ended up in a courtroom alone immediately after the assault, which was horrifying. My special victims counsel told me she wouldn't be able to be at the trial because she was going to be on leave. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And I have the paperwork of where when everyone was filing and scheduling the court martial, there's all the, the key players involved 
the prosecution, the attorneys, the civilian attorneys, they put down all their date conflict, submitted them so that they could set a trial date. Her leave was not on this form. So I don't know when she scheduled it, but I have some ideas. But anyways, she told me she couldn't be at the trial. So she was going to transfer me to a fifth SVC, who's going to be my attorney for the trial. And at this point, I was like, whatever, I don't care. I'm doing this all on my own. Anyways, I'm just trying to survive day to day. A fifth is not going to matter. I was actually in the field right before the trial. And so I only met him on the phone. And then the day before the trial started is when I finally met my lawyer. The trial starts, they go through jury selection and opening statements. And then I was the first witness called to the stand. It felt like I was the one on trial, to be honest, because it was all about me having to defend my actions. I was on the stand for almost the entire day. So like six to eight hours, probably, including multiple recesses because I broke down um, so bad twice. One of the times was when the defense attorney was questioning me. I guess the defense had to like paint a picture like it was your fault or if it was consensual. Is yes. that the angle? Yes. So they had DNA evidence. The defense had to be that it was consensual. Mm-hmm. So Yes, it was. Isn't it true that that was what the defense attorney said multiple times? So that was my testimony. And then once I was done, um, I was not released as a witness. So I had to stay sequestered in the witness room for the entire rest of the trial. So I don't really even know what happened the rest of the trial, except that other witnesses on the government side and then the defense put on their defense and then they did the closing arguments as part of the defense my army appointed special victims counsel was called to the stand to testify against me what the one who told me that she couldn't be there because she was going to be on leave um so she had been my svc from from like january up until right before the trial so The entire time that the military was handling the case, um, she was my attorney. And so the defense argued that because I told my attorney something and then she told the government and then the government told the defense, like discovery, that I violated the attorney-client privilege and everything between her and I was no longer privileged. And so the judge ordered her to testify this one like meeting that we had, like just between her and I, where she had advised me that the defense was going to ask to speak to me before the trial. And as my attorney, she was advising me to not speak to the defense before the trial because they were just going to try to intimidate me. She's like, nothing good will come from it. They're just going to try to intimidate you. And I was like, okay, you're my attorney. You can tell them if they really want to, I'll 
meet them, introduce myself, but I'm not going to like answer any questions because I don't want to get intimidated. I mean, that's intimidating enough. I was also in the field uh, right up until the trial. So there really wasn't any time for it, but it was that particular meeting that the judge wanted my army appointed attorney to testify to say that behind closed doors in our privileged meetings, Aaron, the victim, refused to meet with the defense before the trial. And so the judge said, yes, I grant this, sent the U.S. Marshals to go get her off of leave. I think she was out of state, sent the U.S. Marshals to go get her and bring her to Fort Bragg to testify against me at the court martial. That is insane. I've never heard of someone's attorney being called by the defense. Yes. That was one of the things that I think was really highly inappropriate. Another thing was that the military did, and this was a little bit before the trial, but because some of the witnesses of the actual, at the actual warehouse party the night of the assault, were also members of the special operations unit. The military refused to allow them to be questioned as witnesses for reasons of national security because they were in a classified unit or something like that. Um, Instead of just making the entire trial classified, which is the way that if you remember Uh, Bo Bergdahl's trial was classified. And actually the judge who presided over my court-martial was the same judge for Bo Bergdahl's trial. And it was his last court-martial before he retired as a military judge. What was the uh, outcome of this trial? The jury came back pretty quickly with a verdict of not guilty. And so that was the end of the military's involvement in the legal case. Um, And again, I think, I mean, it easily could have been the end of my everything as well, but it wasn't because I realized how messed up that was. What incentive do you think the military had in protecting the perpetrator and not you? Reputation, investment in terms of training, when civilians are on a trial are in a trial and a witness goes to the stand the only thing that the jury knows about the witness is what they're questioned about but in a military court martial that entire jury is judging my whole military career compared to his simply based on like our uniforms because we wear our dress uniforms during the trial and it's it's really easy for fellow service members to judge an entire career based on a uniform if you understand the way that the uniform is put together. It's hard to turn your back on a service member who is a special operator and has served the military for like 16, 17 years compared to a young officer who hasn't deployed yet and has only been in for like two years. I mean, it seems to me that that's kind of an inherent bias Mm -hmm. that the jury would see just on your dress uniform. Everyone on that jury was from his unit. That's just the way that it goes. The the unit prosecutes 
the court martial, the unit of the accused prosecutes. So they provide the lawyers, they provide the jury. And so, you know, they've all been in the special, they themselves have been in special operations community for however long. It's a very biased system already. Yeah. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the culture of that kind of unit? Like, aren't they kind of taught to take care of their own? I think in the military in general, um, special operations is looked at as like the varsity team sort of. And I mean, even I I loved, loved reading military nonfiction. I love reading history. I love to learn about the military and leadership. And during the time of the assault, I was actually reading a book about an operation that that particular special operations unit was involved in. And I had to stop reading the book because I was so upset by it that, you know, he was from that unit, but I, I was reading it in the first place because they're like, everyone in the military looks at special operators as like the epitome of what you strive to be, what a good soldier is, what the best soldier is. And so there's like that inherent bias. And I mean, we call them special operations. I literally had a friend tell me, well, when people call you special over and over, you start to believe it. And so that's when you cross over from like being a special operator to like, well, maybe, you know, do the rules apply to us? And the way that the units are designed is no, not always the rules don't apply to them because of their mission set. But when that transfers to behavior, not on a mission, when you're just at Fort Bragg, that can create some serious issues. He had was already currently being investigated by Fayetteville Police Department, Fire Department, and Alcohol Law Enforcement like months before I even met him from his little uh, illegal activities. And I don't believe that the military was not aware of that, but because of the units that he was in, you know, it didn't matter. In January of 2019, they released um, a full like investigative journalism story on my case, just my case. It was very detailed. And that was like ABC national. And ever since then, I have gotten hundreds of messages from strangers, people who see the article somewhere and uh, look me up and thank me for speaking up. A lot of them, it's this happened to me, this happened to my sister, this happened to my friend. A lot of them are asking for advice. They feel like they have nowhere else to turn and they feel like a stranger whose article they read is their best option, which is really sad. These people who usually are active duty and have the entire sexual assault prevention and response program set up, but feel like their only actual option is to turn to a stranger from the internet who's been through it. One of the people who reached out to me, the victim was very upset and actually was so angry with the military that the victim wanted to sue and said they were literally Googling like how to sue the military for sexual assault investigation negligence. And that's when my article popped up. And then the victim was like, well, let me see if I can find this girl on Facebook and and did. And then I think it's just a a unique opportunity for everyone in the 
sexual assault arena is what I call it, like law enforcement, victim advocates, district attorneys, mental health providers, to hear from victims candidly and openly about their experiences and how to improve and where where the strengths and weaknesses in the system lie. I have had multiple conversations with um, commanders, like general officers in the army who ask for advice on how to change things, but still nothing has changed. So I don't know that if they're taking it seriously or not. And then just going to like Congress and asking them. Um, although again, I think the problem is actually standing up to the military and putting the control of what the military does back into Congress's hands um, is, is the biggest issue that I think no one wants to do. But it is a unique and positive way to turn a trauma into a positive. It helps me and it helps me find purpose and meaning in what happened. And it helps other people. It helps normalize talking about serious issues like sexual assault because it happens a lot more than we talk about really just allows me and then through my healing to um, help people heal through their traumas and give advice. And that's why I started a podcast called Hey Erin, debuting early 2021. And it will just be my experiences and how I got through them and how others can too. I'm really just trying to inspire change. I think there's a big issue in how the military handles issues like mental health and sexual assault and medical malpractice. And I believe that people, the American people are unaware and should be aware. Um, The military serves the American people, not the other way around. And The American people should know how the military handles things like this and how the military system is set up to take care of or fail to take care of our young Americans, you know, our nation's sons and daughters who sign up to leave home at a young age to serve our country and The systems are just not in place to protect them from enemies, foreign and domestic. My case is not a Fort Bragg problem. It's not a military problem. It's an American problem. As of July 2021, the Secretary of Defense reviewed Erin's case and others like hers at the behest of attorney Natalie Kwam with the whistleblower law firm. The ruling made it so cases like Aaron's can be taken out of the military chain of command and be independently reviewed. This is a huge win for Aaron and four survivors like her. 